you know, 51 weeks out of the year, we're telling you what you can and can't eat. But this week, you can put whatever you want in the cart. You can eat all the sugary stuff that you want, all the sweet stuff, all of your favorite foods, because this is the day that you're, this is a week that you're supposed to celebrate and be, be full of joy and remember that the Lord is good and he wants good things for you as well. Welcome to the Strength and Dignity Podcast, where we discuss Christian lifestyle, scripture, biblical concepts, and hear testimonies from various guests. I'm your host, Kelsey Pryor, and I hope you find encouragement, solid teaching, and thought-provoking concepts here. Welcome to our series on the biblical festivals. Through the course of this series, we will discuss the seven biblical feasts, what they mean to Christians today, Jesus' fulfillment of the spring festivals, what the fall festivals represent, as well as examples from families who celebrate these holidays today. If you enjoy this content, please be sure to share with your friends. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Strength and Dignity podcast. We are still in the middle of our biblical festival series, and this is the episode that most of you, including myself, have been waiting for, and it is the three fall festivals. So I'm really excited to hop into this with you guys. A little bit um, on what's going on right now is that um, Yom Truah, which is the first holiday that I'm going to talk about today, actually just happened. When I'm recording this, it is on Sunday, and Yom Truah was on Friday and Saturday, which means that Yom Kippur is coming up next and Sukkot is very quickly coming upon us. So I'm really excited to get this episode out to you guys before Sukkot because I think a lot of you might want to observe at least a little bit of this holiday, maybe in through some scripture reading or just um, maybe planning for next year what you might want Sukkot to look like for your family next year. So this is a really great time to be diving into these scriptures, learning about this topic, and seeing what God has for you here. So I can't wait to um, help show you, tell you guys a little bit of what I have learned, and I hope that you guys will um, continue to do some research because I am not doing, I'm not claiming to be an expert on any of this information that I'm about to bring to you today, but my family has done um, Sukkot and Passover a lot as I've been growing up. And in the past few years, I personally have become a lot more interested in the significance of the biblical festivals and throughout all of my personal research have found some things that I love sharing with you guys throughout this series, but I don't claim to be an authority on the topic. So if my, if this episode kind of sparks something inside of you, I urge you to read the scriptures yourself, do your own research, find other people who are a lot more experienced and knowledgeable on this topic and see what they have to say as well. So um, without further ado, let's get into the fall biblical festivals. So one of the things that we've been talking about throughout this series is about how there are seven biblical festivals as laid out in Leviticus 23 and how they all have an element to them that is historically remembrance and an element that is prophetic. And as we talked about in the last episode, all of this four spring festivals, their prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus's first coming. So those um, basically are all remembrance now. So there was remembrance back like the Israelites in Egypt type of historical remembrance. And now the prophecy that has been fulfilled is also um, historical at this point um, with Jesus's first coming. The exciting thing about these three fall festivals is that the prophecy in them has yet to be fulfilled. So I will give a little disclaimer that we are going to be talking a lot about um, kind of end times and eschatology. If you guys don't know what that is, study of the end times. So we're going to be diving into a little bit of some interesting topics here. So make sure that you're, uh, you're, you're ready for it. But I I think that you'll be really excited um, and interested in what God has to teach us about Jesus's second coming through the biblical festival. So even if it goes right over your head, um, as you continue to do research or maybe listen to this episode a second time, um, I think that each time 
you'll start to latch on to more and more and more. Um, and just also just going to this, like praying like, God, what do you want me to get out of this episode? Cause honestly there is a lot. And as I was doing the research, I learned way more than I thought was out there. So there is going to be a lot of different Bible references. We're going to be hopping all over the old and the new Testament here. We're going to be talking, um, about, the Talmud, some things that are written in the um, extra biblical Jewish text called the Talmud. Um, and we're also just going to be talking about different um, teachings from various rabbis and um, as well as a book that I got a lot of my information from and some um, blog posts from Messianic Jew- Jewish people and so stuff like that. So we're going to hop all over the place here. Um, any links to books or blog posts that I can provide for you will be in the show notes below. So let's get into it. So, okay, so there's three Biblical festivals, as I've referenced, in the fall time. Yom Truah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot, and they're in that order. Um, Yom Truah is currently known as Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah literally translates to head of the year. So it is the Jewish New Year, and it happens to be at the exact same time as Yom Truah. So they've kind of eclipsed each other a little bit. So Rosh Hashanah is not typically how this specific holiday was referenced to in scripture. And so I'm going to be referencing to it as Yom Truah. It does actually have multiple names. Um, um, the translations of those names are the day of shouting, day of judgment, day of remembrance, day of the coronation of the king. So all of those names have things that we can, we as believers know point to Jesus. So um, first of all, just in the name itself, I think that's really cool that um, no matter how you're referencing this holiday, it somehow points to Jesus, which is why I want to refer to it in its biblical name, not according to its modern name, because head of the year is a lot less cool than day of the coronation of the king. So we're going to go with that one. Um, Okay. So this is going to be, this is probably my favorite in terms of um, prophecy fulfillment and what what the timeline actually means. So as we talked about the spring festivals, we saw that Jesus fulfilled the prophetic meaning of all the spring festivals on the exact day that the festival happened. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and um, Shavuot. Those all happened on the exact day of the holiday. So Yom Truah, it it's the day of trumpets. It's the day of shouting. It's the day. It's it's really interesting because it's actually not actually not described a lot throughout Scripture. The only thing that Leviticus twenty three says is that this is the day that you're supposed to blow the trumpets. But it doesn't really give any more detail or a lot of indication on what that's for or what it means or what else you're supposed to do on this specific day. Um, right now, how they typically celebrate it on Rosh Hashanah is they. Um, they do four different shofar blasts. So a shofar is a ram's horn um, that you blow like a trumpet. And the first one is just one big blast of alarm. And that is typically the sound used for a king's coronation. So that's pretty cool. Then following that are three blasts of wailing, which represent the Jewish heart and yearning calling out um, to try to connect with God. And then following that is nine blasts, which represent crying, meant to arouse one from any spiritual slumber that they are in. And the last one is one long final blast, which represents the arrival of the king. And so those are how they celebrate um, 
Yom Truah today is through those four different types of trumpet blasts. But um, what's really interesting is that this is um, typically celebrated by Jewish people who do not read our New Testament scriptures and do not know that this exact prophecy is fulfilled in Revelation. And so we're going to talk about that today. Um, I found this blog post that was really helpful for me, written by um, a Messianic Jew. And um, he talks about the timeline of Yom Truah. When is it supposed to be celebrated? So Yom Truah is um, prophetic of the day that the trumpets blast right when Jesus comes back, if you haven't caught on on to that already. So that's why the blast representing the king's coronation and the arrival of the king is so cool because it represents when Jesus comes back. But if we remember that the spring holidays, Jesus fulfilled those exactly on the day of those holidays. And if we also remember in Matthew, um, I think 25, he tells us that we do not know the day or the hour that he's coming back. So we can easily say, well, he must not come back on Yom Truah because we're supposed to not know when he's coming back. But that is a really, really interesting part of it. Yom Truah is celebrated over two days. It is the only day that we do not know the day or the hour it's supposed to be celebrated on. So I'm going to read this little snippet. The reason that we celebrate for two days is because if we waited to start our celebration until after the new moon had been sanctified, we would have missed half the celebration because the new moon can only be sanctified during daylight hours. The new moon is also very difficult to see on the first day because it can be seen only about sunset close to the sun when the sun is traveling north. So looking for a very slim, faint crescent moon, which is very close to the sun, is a difficult thing to do. So it all has to do on the sun and the moon. It's kind of hard to tell because it's all on a, based on a lunar calendar. It's hard to tell exactly when the moon is in the right position that you're supposed to be celebrating this holiday. So they celebrate it over the course of two days. And there's lots of debate over which day is the day they're supposed to celebrate it on. So coming back to when Jesus tells us we do not know the day or the hour of his return, it actually does correlate exactly to what Yom Truah looks like today. We do not know the day or the hour it's supposed to be celebrated on. There's lots of controversy over that. Um... Okay, so let's read Matthew 24, 29 through 39. This is uh, Jesus talking. Immediately after the the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one ends of the earth to the other. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see all these things, you know when it is that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Then in Matthew 25, 13, he says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Mark 13, 28 through 37. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. He keeps referencing this fig tree. You might want to go back and read the story in context. The fig tree actually represents um, Israel. We're supposed to tell the times and seasons that we're in based off of Israel. That's a whole nother 
rant that I could go on. Um, so I'm just going to say that. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know the summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but these words will never pass away. Um, and then the rest of it continues just like it did in Matthew. So this um, exact same story is told twice in Matthew 24. And in Mark 13, and then in Matthew 25, he tells us to keep watch. We do not know the day or the hour. So it, it seems that the command that Jesus is giving us within these contexts is that we're supposed to know the seasons that we're in. We're supposed to be aware of the signs and the seasons. We're supposed to know the, the moon and what's happening according to prophecy and all these kinds of things. Yet we do not know the day or the hour. So it seems like Jesus wants us to be on alert and be aware of the times we're living in, but know that only God knows the exact time that it's supposed to happen in. Um, but we we aren't told that we can't know about about when it might be happening. We're actually told to be looking for those signs. So we're supposed to be on the alert and watching out for when Jesus is supposed to return. We don't want him to find us slumbering. We don't want him to find us without our oil, like in the parable of the 10 virgins. We want him to find us ready to join him. And um, knowing that he is coming back on Yom Truah, we don't know the year. We don't even exactly know what day that holiday is supposed to be celebrated on. We, so it just gives us enough of an idea to be ready, but not enough of an idea to know with certainty. Um, which I think is just an illustration of how faith works in general. Um, okay, so if this is about the time that Jesus returns, um, then it's ab- then it's also the time that believers are raptured. And I know there's a lot of controversy over this. So this is when we're kind of getting a little bit into eschatology here, into study of the end times. Um, and so it's okay if you're not totally into it, but I do believe that most believers should have a basic understanding of what's what we're supposed to be looking forward to, what we're supposed to be building up to, and what um, we're working towards as believers bringing on Jesus' a second coming. Um and so there's a lot of controversy over this, the, tri- the season of tribulation in the world. The rapture happens somewhere in there for the believers to be taken up with Jesus in the sky and then his kingdom comes after that. Um, I believe that if we're supposed to be looking towards the the holidays as our prophecy for Jesus' second coming, then um, it's pretty clear that Yom Truah is the day that we get raptured. And... Um, that would mean that we would be enduring the seven prior years of some type of persecution up until that point. But it does not mean that we are enduring the wrath of God. And that is what we're going to get into in the next holiday that we talk about, Yom Kippur. But first, I'm just going to read some of these verses to reinforce what I'm saying. First First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.10 for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you return to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So he rescues us from wrath. Malachi 3, 16 through 17. Then those who feared the Lord <clears throat> talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has comp- compassion and spares his son who serves him. Daniel 12, 1. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as never happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So it seems that the, that those in Christ um, get raised after the trumpet sounds, which is happening on Yom Truah. Um, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. First Corinthians 15, 52 in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Um, and so this is, so this is all just reinforcing what I'm saying about how, um, there is a rapture when we get caught up with Jesus, but there's controversy over when, um, and it seems to me that we are delivered from some type of wrath, but Jesus never offers us any promise that we will be delivered from persecution. In fact, he does promise that we will endure persecution. We are told to take up our cross daily, to deny our flesh, to endure, to rejoice in times of persecution. And so I do not think that the previous seven years of of persecution, whatever that looks like, are um, is something that d- believers get to skip out on, unless, of course, they've already died. Um but it does seem that, or not seem, it says in First Thessalonians that at the trumpet, both those dead in Christ and those still alive, that is when we get raptured. But the interesting thing is that we are promised deliverance from God's wrath. And so that brings us into Yom Kippur. So um, we've gone through Yom Truah. This is the day that we will think that we were probably going to get raptured. Um, historically, there's we don't know a lot of significance around this day, except that we're supposed to blow trumpets. Um, okay, so we're going into Yom Kippur. This means the day of atonement. Atonement means the reconciliation of God and humankind through Jesus Christ. But Kippur itself, Yom Kippur, um, it actually means more like ransom. So the day of ransoming. I think that's interesting. Um, Jews believe that this is the most holy day because it is the day that their sins are to be forgiven. It's typically a day full of fretting and anxiety um, among Jewish people who don't believe that Jesus has already forgiven them. But as Christians, we know that our sins have already been forgiven. So we don't need to um, cause a lot of fretting and anxiety on this specific day. Um, but there is a lot of, I'll, I'll pause on the whole end times thing and give a little bit of historical background on this holiday. Um, let's look at Leviticus 16, um, which is when they're supposed to offer a scapegoat. We're going to start in verse 7. Then he has to take the Aaron, talking about Aaron. Actually, let's go back to verse 6. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it out into the wilderness as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and the ho- and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the bare fire before the Lord. So there's all this ritual around um, atonement of sin. He is to then slaughter the goat for the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it um, on the atonement cover and in front and in front of it. 
In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of the uncleanliness. Okay, so um, this is the whole thing about about the goat. So moving down into verse 20, when Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess it, all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness and care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. So this is kind of a strange ritual. He's supposed to confess his sins to this goat and send it off into the wilderness. Um, we know from the Talmud, which is not scripture, but it is the more traditions of the Jewish people. Um, it's it's typically a pretty solid source of historic. It's pretty historically accurate, although I will doubt its lawful accuracy according to God's will, but it does, it does record a lot of history, um, as well. And so it, it records what, like the tradition that they had around the scapegoat, not necessarily the scripture and the tradition that they had around this was, it says that the goat is to carry their sins into the wilderness. So what they would do to represent this is tie a scarlet cord around its neck and send it into the wilderness. Then they would tie a scarlet cord around the door of the sanctuary so that they could see it. And what's interesting, maybe more than interesting, it's actually pretty crazy, is that once the goat reached the wilderness, the scarlet cord, both around its neck and the door of the sanctuary, would turn white. Okay, so just miraculously, this this thread, this scarlet thread, which started out red, in representation of their sins, miraculously turns white when the goat hits the wilderness. Okay, so that's crazy. But then in another section of the Talmud, which again is written by the Jewish people who do not want anyone to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they say, they record that after Jesus, the the lots that they cast for the goats would not come up in the right hand. The cord would not turn red and then the temple doors would open by themselves. Okay, so this is after Jesus, when we're supposed to know that our sins have already been atoned for and the Jews who do not believe that Jesus atones for our sins, we're still trying to do the scapegoat ritual to atone for their sins. God's like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not performing this miracle for you. I already performed a miracle. I, I let my son come down to be killed and then I raised him from the dead. That's the sign of the atonement of your sins that you get. And so the scarlet cord stopped turning white and the doors of the temple opened, which we can, it can remind us also of how the curtain was torn in the temple when Jesus died as a representation. It's an invitation. God says, the doors are open. The curtain is torn. Come to me. I invite you. Like you're open to do this now. And so I just think that's fascinating that this is actually, we. I, I mean, I would not doubt the accuracy of this just because it's written by people who don't actually want it to be true, yet they still recorded it because that's what happened after Jesus. So this is something that I learned that was brand new to me. As you can tell, I thought, I mean, it's just insane. Like that's just crazy. Okay. Like an actual miracle that has an actual, like God stopped doing it after Jesus. Cause he's like, no, this has been fulfilled. Okay. Jesus made atonement for your sins. All right. 
So um, nowadays, Jewish people still try to keep Yom Kippur by praying their sins away. Um, it's the day when if you're in Israel, people will just go around apologizing to each other all day, um, trying to get their name into the book of life before it closes. Um, and so it's just kind of interesting what they, they have to do these days to work around the fact that there is no temple to sacrifice in. Um, okay, so, but biblically, what Yom Kippur represents is the bowls of God's wrath and revelation that we can read about when he cleanses the whole earth. And this is the wrath that believers are promised to be delivered from, which is why I think the rapture happens just before Yom Kippur on Yom Teruah, not only because it says that we are raptured on the day when the trumpets are blasted, but also because it does guarantee our deliverance from God's wrath, not our deliverance from persecution. So Yom Kippur happens and then five days later, Sukkot happens. And Sukkot is my favorite because this is the one that um, I have grown up celebrating pretty much my whole life. I'll tell you guys a short little story here. So um, I went to a public school until I was in second grade and um, the school was within walking distance of my house and my house was like on the main street. So you had to pass my house to get to the school. So most of my, my classmates would drive past my house to get to school every day. And um, the year that we decided to start doing Sukkot, um, we built this PVC pipe tent that had like white plastic lattice surrounding three walls um, and an ugly blue tarp as the floor sitting in our front yard because all we had was a front yard and it's actually our house was on the corner so it could I mean it could be seen from everywhere and um, my dad who could work from home at the time would work in the sukkah and people kept saying is this like some sort of weird Halloween decoration because it does usually happen like beginning of October so like what type of Halloween decoration is this and my dad as he's sitting out there people are walking past our house we live in a walking town so people are walking past constantly would just keep stopping and be like, what is this? So you guys to kind of talk about Sukkot, but even I didn't really understand why do we have this weird like plastic tent in our yard? I don't get it. Um, but at, throughout the years, as we've continued to do this, it has become um, our family's probably favorite holiday. So Christmas would be second probably. Um, so this is an amazing holiday and it's in a stark contrast to Yom Kippur when everyone's kind of fretting and anxious, worried that they're not going to be put into the book of life, all this kind of stuff. Um, and Sukkot is commanded to be a celebration. It is supposed to be um, a festival of joy. So Deuteronomy 16, 13 through 15 says, celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your flesh threshing floor and your wine press. So this is after the harvest all the harvests. Be joyful at your festival, you, your sons, your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns. For seven days, celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. Doesn't that sound amazing? Um, Okay, so this is a time when all the harvests are complete. We talked about the harvest a little bit during the spring festivals, um, how there was the barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and now this is after the grapes have been harvested, which are the three main harvests um, in Israel. And so this is after those, those all three have happened. Um, to celebrate this festival, what you do is you build a temporary dwelling with... Um, 
typically three closed walls and then one that's either either um, either fully or partially opened and a ceiling that is made out of branches cut branches there's not allowed to be any overhanging trees but you can cut off branch tree branches of trees and lay them over your roof you're supposed to be able to see the stars through them that's the point there um and some people take off work um, during for the whole week, but actually lots of people don't um, because it's mostly celebrated in the evening. But really what you're supposed to do is eat all of your meals in it and then some people sleep in it. Not everyone, but some people sleep in it. And basically the command is just to dwell in the sukkah for seven days. Um, so traditionally also in Leviticus 23, uh, God mentioned some plants that he wants to have incorporated in this. So what they'll do is they'll take a luav, which is, um, something that they shake and say with a blessing, it's made up of willow, palm and myrtle branches. And then something called, I think it's pronounced etrog, etrog. I don't know how to pronounce it. It looks like a lemon, but it's some type of citrus. So they hold those three branches and then they're like lemon thing in their hands and they shake it as they say their blessings. They shake it, um, I think to four different points actually. Um, and so this is just something that traditionally Jewish people do um, to comply with Leviticus 23. However, our family doesn't do that part. There's actually eight days to this feast. There's like an a eighth day that gets added on to the end here. Um, and something interesting that happens during this eighth day is throughout all the other days, they sacrifice, I think it's 70 bulls um, for all of the 70 nations at that time. They would sacrifice um, all of those for the nations, but on the last day, they would only sacrifice one for Israel. And that's the day that they would pray for rain and pray for the next harvest. And it's typically a day um, full of blessings. So the last day of Sukkot is a very special day. Um, okay. I'm going to I'm going to take what seems like a rabbit trail and I promise I'm going to bring it right back around. We're going to go to De- De- Deuteronomy 14 real quick. Um, and this is actually about tithing. And when I say the word tithe, I do not want you to picture sitting in a pew at church with a little metal plate being passed around where you feel guilty if you don't put anything in it. So you probably put at least five bucks in it. You know, that thing. That's not how the Bible talks about tithing. Let me just be clear about that, okay? So read uh, Deuteronomy 14, starting in verse 22. This is how tithing looks, setting aside a tenth of everything in the Bible, okay? Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as his dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is too far away. By the way, that place is Jerusalem. Later says the place that God chose to put his name is Jerusalem. Then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drink or anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice and do not neglect the Levites living in your towns for they have no allotment or inheritance of their own. Um, So... This is very interesting section because I'm sure that this doesn't sound like tithing at your church. Um, they're supposed to take all that they have, the, a tenth of all that their fields have produced 
and eat it before the Lord. That is their tithe. They get to celebrate. They get to actually eat it or trade it for silver. If the Lord your God has blessed you with so much that you can't even carry it to Jerusalem, then trade it for silver. And once you get to Jerusalem, then trade it for whatever you like, whatever kind of food or livestock or wine or drink that you want, you trade it and you eat it before the Lord your God. That is what he wants tithing to look like. And the reason that I bring it up in this context is because they're clearly on a pilgrimage when they're supposed to go to Jerusalem. And that happens three times a year, um, Passover, Shavuot, and um, Sukkot. Sukkot is the biggest one. and It's the one full of the most rejoicing. So that's why I mentioned it in this circumstance is because this is what the tithing um, of Sukkot looks like. They're supposed to actually eat the 10th that their fields produce and celebrate and get whatever they want. So we have lots of families in our community that keep Sukkot and the way that they make it fun for their kids is they'll literally just go to the grocery store and say, you know, 51 weeks out of the year, we're telling you what you can and can't eat. But this week, you can put whatever you want in the cart. You can eat all the sugary stuff that you want, all the sweet stuff, all of your favorite foods, because this is the day that you're, this is a week that you're supposed to celebrate and be be full of joy and remember that the Lord is good and he wants good things for you as well. So I just think that that's super interesting and very um, prevalent to mention during this time, because it is it just tells how joyful this day is supposed to actually be. And I keep saying day, this week. Um, Okay, so um, historically, this is when we remember when the Israelites lived in the wilderness for 40 years um, and they relied only on God. For us, this is a time that we remember that we live by faith and that this earth is not our home and that we're looking forward to the coming kingdom, which does remind me of Hebrews 11, um, 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations who architect and, whose architect and builder is God. And so that's what we do. We as believers do um, during Sukkot. We build this temporary dwelling. And for us, I promise you, it's very temporary. Like no one in my family knows how to build anything. So it usually falls over by the last day. Um, And sometimes we just get like little pop-up tents from Costco, like farmer's market tents. Sometimes we build something out of wood. Lately, we've been doing that. Jackson's been getting better actually building stuff. So the past few years, it's been a bit more stable. But throughout the past few years, it has been very unstable. Usually wind kind of just picks it up and throws it across the yard at least once that week. But It's to remember, we look at the tent, we're we're living in the tent and we look at our house and we say, this is not our home. We're looking forward to a city whose architect and builder is God. We are strangers in a foreign land. It's hard to remember that because, you know, this is all we've ever known. But it's important to have a time that we remember that we're actually looking forward to a different city where our King Jesus reigns. And so that is the significance of, that is why Christians today could and probably should um, observe Sukkot in some capacity because it's important for us to not forget our actual goal. Our actual goal is the new Jerusalem. It's the city that Jesus is bringing. And then we're going to talk about Revelation in just a second. Um, Okay, so a few things about Jesus's time during Sukkot. Um, You can read the whole chapter of John 7 if you want to read a whole story about Jesus during Sukkot. But one thing that's um, interesting about this story towards the very end in verse um, 37, it says, Jesus completed Sukkot with calling out, 
that he's sat. Oh, it doesn't say this. I'm just summarizing here. Jesus completed to coat with it's on the last day with calling out that he satisfies thirst. Like anyone who's thirsty, come to me. And what's interesting about this, that it doesn't actually stay in scripture, but what happens on the last day, or it doesn't stay in this chapter, but what happens on the last day is that the rabbi will take water and pour it from a golden pitcher pitcher and recite as he's reciting Isaiah 12, one through three. And this is talking about, I'm actually going to look it up right now. Isaiah 12. Sorry, I didn't have all my verses ready here. One through three. It says, I will praise you, Lord. So picture the rabbi is pouring out this water out of this golden picture. And he's saying, I will praise you, Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Do you guys know what the word for salvation is in Hebrew? It's Yeshua, which is Jesus's name. And so after the rabbi says this, Jesus stands up in John 7 and he says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Okay, so that's just a cool, like if you know the significance of what's actually happening at that moment, the rabbi pouring out the water and saying um, Isaiah, Isaiah 12 and then you parallel that with John 7 when Jesus is saying that he is the living water. Um, so in that way, he fulfilled this that part of Sukkot. Another interesting thing, this is um, purely purely speculation, but it act, or not speculation. Um, it doesn't actually say when Jesus is born. A lot of people don't agree with Christmas and stuff like that because they don't think that's when Jesus is born. Um, it is most likely not when he was born. Um, and the reasons for that, it's a lot of details that I won't go into right now, but you can look it up. Um, taking into account when John the Baptist was conceived and that Jesus was conceived six months later, the fact that the sh there, there were shepherds in the field and that it was most likely during the time of a pilgrimage festival, which would account for why the inns were so full. Um, and why the Romans would do a census during that time of the year um, points to it being um, during Sukkot. So Jesus might have been born during Sukkot. Um, okay, so that's all historically, like the Israelites in the wilderness during Jesus' time. And now we'll look forward to the future. So Sukkot prophetically represents the millennial kingdom when Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years, which follows the trumpets and the day of atonement. Um, and this is told to us in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. So that dwelling is sukkah, Sukkot. So God literally pitches his sukkah, his dwelling among us in Revelation 21. That is what we have to look forward to. And then that's when Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years. Um, I also want to point out Zechariah 14. The fun thing about this is that Zechariah 14 is actually was in my weekly reading this week. So I read it and was like, oh my gosh, this is perfect. I can talk about this during my Sukkot series. And I didn't have to like Google anything. I just found it during my reading. So that was kind of fun when stuff like that comes up organically. Okay, Zechariah 14, starting in verse 16. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up. Okay, 
<laughs> it's interesting. The survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the Lord, if any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will not have, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts to the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. So this tells us that even after Jesus comes, we will still be celebrating this um, holiday. Tabernacle is another word for booth or sukkah um, together with Jesus once he's here. So how amazing is that going to be, right? Okay, um, Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 26, says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary, my sanctuary, my sukkah, among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. So how amazing is that, that we have that to look forward to, that what we're looking forward to today is not um, another version of a sinful world. It is a world where Jesus reigns um, on here on earth and that we have an actual tangible way to celebrate and look forward to that, to teach our children, to teach non-believers, to teach Jews um, through the through the Sukkah celebration, through all of the biblical feasts. Um, how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of all of these scriptures and all of these prophecies and how the secrets to God, God's feast really are hidden into these celebrations that he founded all the way back when the Israelites were captives in, in Egypt. I mean, he probably thought of them before then, but he, he gave them to mankind, to Israel way back then, way before Jesus even came the first time, pr prophesying when Jesus has yet to come. And so I just think that it's so cool. Like, why would we deny this way that God has given us this? I mean, if God creates something, obviously it's perfect and he's thought all the details through. So if he, if he is completely come up with this discipleship program for us to get to know um, his coming kingdom, look forward to his coming kingdom, and remember that this earth is not our home. Why would we not partake in such a joyful celebration? All right, I have a, a few last um, <clears throat> resources for you guys to go look up for Sukkot. So um, stories of Sukkot throughout scripture. I have two, um, Nehemiah 8 and John 7 are two passages I didn't fully read. Um, so if you want to go back and read those stories, those are just stories of Sukkot being celebrated, um, which is really cool. And then if you as a family want to get more into Sukkot, even if this year you don't want to plan a, a week-long festival and build a tent in your yard, I do not blame you. Um, if this sounds like something you want to do in the future, then I highly encourage you to, to start planning and to do so. But one fun thing for you might be um, just this year as a slow kind of step into it um, would be watching the movie called Ushpuzin. So Ushpuzin means um, honored guest in Hebrew. And during Sukkot, it is said that you want Ushpuzin, you want to be blessed with honored guests um, during Sukkot, that it's a blessing from God if you get guests during Sukkot. And so this is a movie um, that takes place in Israel and it's about an Orthodox Jewish couple who um, can't have kids and they get visited by honored guests 
during Sukkot. And so that's why it's called Ushpazin. And it is really, really good. It's in Hebrew, but it has subtitles. And my family watches it every year. Even before I could really understand what was going on, we would always watch it. And I just thought it was so interesting listening to the Hebrew and seeing the culture. If you want to see everything that I just talked about, like shaking the luavs and building the sukkahs and see what it looks like for with, when an entire country, an entire culture keeps this holiday, just visually, I think it's very, very just so cool to see how this has been preserved throughout the generations. Um, Jew passed down to Jew passed down to Jew. And I, I just think it's so mind blowing. Um, so it's one of my favorite movies. I highly encourage you guys to go watch it. And I hope that you guys um, had your mind absolutely blown by this story that God has been writing since the beginning of time that he has decided to share parts of his heart, parts of his story, parts of his plan to us and that we have the opportunity to partake in that through the festivals. So thank you so much for listening to this episode of Strength and Dignity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Strength and Dignity. Make sure you follow us on Instagram and Facebook and sign up for our newsletter to be notified of all the fun stuff we have rolling out. All the links can be found in the description below. Hope you tune in next time.